This is The Guardian. The story has to be great. The story has to be true. And your dedication is to the quality of the story. So it's no good writing a story that is sort of driven by didacticism or or some sort of polemical message if the story itself fails. And I believe that by focusing on the, the quality of the writing, by focusing on the narrative and the quality of the stories, you know, for want of a better term, the politics will, will reveal itself. Sometimes when we love a piece of fiction, when we're transported into another world by it, a place where we want to linger, a place that we think about long after we've finished reading, it can be difficult to say precisely what has captivated us. Sometimes it is the characters. We don't have to like them, but to share their experience, to understand what they feel, we do have to connect with something inside them. In the title of one of his books of short stories, Melbourne writer Tony Birch has called them common people. But this should not be mistaken as a pejorative, because Tony stops and sits with his characters. He listens to them. Then he gives voice and dignity and form and nuance to people that too many other writers walk past. In his most recent book of short stories, Dark as Last Night, he writes from the margins again, creating characters who often dwell on the edges of our society, rural and urban. Tony is one of the truly great and prolific living Australian authors. He's an essayist, poet, a novelist, and an Indigenous rights and climate justice activist. He's a former fireman and telegraph boy, a dedicated runner and a very proud granddad, and a Carlton supporter, I hate to say. He grew up in inner city Melbourne, where he still lives, with a rich Aboriginal Barbadian convict Irish and Afghan heritage. And I'm really delighted that Tony is joining us today on Book It In. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for coming along today and chatting. Thank you, Paul, very much for having me. Tony, who are the people in Darkers last night? Well, I I think you summed it up in some way. They are certainly people on the margins. They're people who I don't characterise as being on the margins for myself. They're people that I understand as being um, relative to real-life characters who have always been at the centre of my life. And when I create characters who are otherwise on the margins of society... They're people that I I still see as being centred. I've written often, as you probably know, about homeless people. And although on the page I'm trying to move them from the margins to the centre, they're reflective of my upbringing and my social relationships so that when I grew up as a kid, there are a lot of homeless men, um, very few women, but a lot of homeless men around the inner city, particularly in Fitzroy and Collingwood. And we never regarded them as marginal. I often knew these people by name and my mum would, you know, interact and speak with people and, and knew their families. And um, 
to see homeless people today who are in a sense nameless is something that's a bit of an aberration in our life. And um, yeah, my mum who lives in Collingwood and still shops on Smith Street in Collingwood and Fitzroy, um, she still has that really strong affinity with people that other people ignore. So that I suppose that my natural inclination is to be drawn to people who, and yeah, you use the word common people, although my life has changed in many ways materially and in some ways culturally, I do genuinely see myself as part of these communities. I don't feel that I'm a writer writing from above. I feel a, a very neat understanding of my relationship with the sort of characters I create. Tony, you're in a building in Fitzroy today, which is the suburb I think you you live in, and life in Fitzroy has evolved a fair bit since when you were brought up there in the in the 50s and 60s, I'm guessing. But can you tell us the story of the building you're in? Yeah, well, this building is um, obviously I'm in a recording studio and it's in a larger building where they it looks like there are a lot of sort of um, professional creative industries located here. Um, in the late 1950s, this was a, a news agency, a paper shop as we called it in those days. It was a paper shop run by a, a man who was regarded at best as eccentric, a man who had stopped paying his bills to the um, the people who sold him newspapers and magazines and consequently he stopped getting deliveries of daily papers but he just went on selling old newspapers and magazines for, for a long time, um, newspapers and magazines that became eaten away by rats and mice and there was a local urban myth that this man was in fact very rich, that he had money hidden here in the building. It's a two-story 1880s building. And one of my uncles, who was only 15 at the time, um, with two other boys, decided to rob um, the news agency. They um, came here in the night. The, the news agent caught the boys in the shop. One of them hit the news agent over the head, and he's made his way to St Vincent's Hospital, where unfortunately consequently died. So these three 15-year-old boys were charged with... Uh, murder, which was a, a crime which was then downgraded to manslaughter. And um, my 15-year-old uncle spent um, time, what was then called the Tirana Boys Home in Parkville, um, for, for his involvement in this crime. Were brushes with the law uh, in that community pretty common as you were growing up or amongst the generation before you? Well, certainly in my generation. So I I was a teenager um, by 1970, so my brushes with the law occurred much later when I was a teenager living on a public housing estate in Richmond. But I lived in Fitzroy throughout the 60s. And I mean, the brushes with the law could be, of course, juvenile or, or, or criminal. But I think the important thing to note for people is that Fitzroy, like many other inner suburbs, was really heavily dependent on what we call the sublegal economy. Um, sublegal, we would include things like sly grog, um, gambling, particularly SP bookmaking, um, prostitution, um, and even the crime of snow dropping, which is stealing clothes off, off washing lines, um, which is obviously mostly a women's pursuit. They were involved with the pawn shop economy in relationship to that activity. And we use the term sublegal because in a way saying that a lot of these activities were technically illegal, but they were allowed to thrive and they thrive very well because of an important relationship between those involved in those industries and local police and certainly 
um, the vice squad and licensing squads of the Victorian police. And we might think about it today as a sort of form of corruption, but it would be a really simplistic term to devalue a much more complex relationship. And just to put it sort of simply, if someone like my grandmother, who ran a sly grog in Fitzroy out of the backyard of her house in George Street, if she wanted that sly grog to thrive and to to be controlled in an orderly manner, she had to have a relationship with local police so that, in other words, she could sell alcohol from the back gate, but the police would say you can't have men drinking out in the lane. And if men did come and um, were unruly or if they took their alcohol into the lane and were drinking, she could call the police and they would move the men on. And so it was about police knowing full well that none of these activities could be stamped out. And the best way to control them was for police and those who ran these activities to have a, a relationship which allowed things to go forward in a fairly orderly manner. So particularly in relationship to SP bookmaking, um, the gambling clubs and sly grogging, they could not have occurred without having a good relationship with police. And again, I, I, I think people who were involved in those industries and those activities would, would see the, the notion of it being corrupt as being sort of a misunderstanding of, of what, what occurred. So it might surprise people just on that to understand that local sort of you know, low-level um, criminal activity um, and relationships with police were, were often very good relationships or certainly very ordered relationships. So you don't have this sense of you know, police simply being in the enemy of working class and Aboriginal people and migrants, of course, involved in the clubs, that the relationship could often be very fruitful. Tony, I know some readers think all fiction is heavily biographical, and of course that's not always or maybe not even often the case, but I'm just wondering about some of these characters in your short stories that we're talking about today. Um, I'm thinking a lot about Spider Muller here in The Librarian and his mate Daniel who read everything and carried a Camus paperback in his back pocket and maybe saw himself as a dedicated writer and reader but who couldn't stand school. I'm, I'm wondering how much of Daniel was actually Tony. Well, I think just a little bit of backtracking, certainly my first book, Shadowboxing, which is now um, 15 years ago, you would regard that as a, a fairly heavily autobiographical um, collection. Um, since then, I would argue that a lot of my fiction is not autobiographical in the sense of experience, but certainly it's absolutely informed by what you might call my worldview or my, my politics, my philosophy of life and my experience. Having said that, you are right that in the story of the librarian, the, the character Daniel is quite autobiographical. And what I wanted to do with that story was to reiterate a point I've often made that Firstly, that the notion that poor, you know, working class Aboriginal kids are, are stupid, um, which is, yeah, we're often classified as stupid, um, was, was was a misnomer. Um, I was a really voracious reader as a kid and I loved really um, quality, challenging reading um, and that it was one of the one subjects or areas of my schooling that I, that I loved. I actually really didn't like school at all. My whole school experience, I, I just wanted to be out of school. But because I was so dedicated to reading, it was one of the aspects of education that, that kept me engaged. So that, um, not surprisingly, if, if you read well and you read a lot, your ability to engage with the humanities is, is really strong because you know, literature is really the basis of, of understanding the humanities, I think. So that the story matters because the kid ends up working in the, you know, the cafeteria washing dishes at the 
you know, Coles Cafeteria in, in Melbourne, but he is always reading. And I didn't, of course, carry the story on, but when I decided to go back and do my year 12 schooling of a night when I was in my mid-20s, I'd continued that reading habit right through my life. And I actually found doing year 12 of a night and then going on to university, I wouldn't use the term easy, but I was really well equipped to, to do well at university. And I think it's because of that love of reading that, I, that I've always had. Tony, you write a fair bit about death in this collection. It's something present or threatened or not very far away. And there's a particularly beautiful story, I think, after Afterlife, about a brother and sister going to clean out the one-bedroom government flat of their younger brother, Billy, who'd lived there for 20 years. And that, that would seem to have a pretty obvious parallel um, to, to your experience with your own brother in, in some senses. Yeah, I mean, there, there are two points there. One is about the whole attitude towards death itself. So that I went to um, Catholic school, um, Catholic primary schools until I'd finished grade six. And I was also an altar boy for a period. And, yeah, we had to go to mass every Sunday. So we were sort of right in that Catholic culture of inner city Melbourne, overseen initially by Daniel Mannix. I mean, it might sound weird, but I actually went to Daniel Mannix's um, funeral, which either says how, how old I was or how old he was. So, yeah, here's a man who was campaigning against the conscription referendum in the First World War, and yet I went to his funeral, I think, in 1963. And his sort of attitude to giving poorer kids an education in the inner city of Melbourne was sort of had a real influence on my schooling. And I would say, by the way, you know, I understand the, the, the terrible behaviour of the Catholic Church, but I actually thrived in the Christian Brothers system. I, I actually did really well educationally. So... The problem with death and the Catholic Church is that you, fear is instilled into you so that you are told repeatedly that if you sin, you will suffer you know, for eternity in hell and you will suffer um, pain for infinity. And so my, my attitude towards death as a child was that I was so frightened of, of death. It, it, it literally mortified me and I'm not being – that's not a cliché um, – so that has changed a lot over the years and I don't have that fear anymore, but I still, and I think people, when I tell them this, they get a bit worried about me, but I think about death every day at some point in the day. And I don't think about it in a, you know, certainly not in a suicidal way or in a depressive way, but it's always something that has been something that I'm not shy of thinking about. Um, a close friend of mine said that when my time comes, there'll be no one better prepared <laughs> <laughs> than me because I've done a lot of rehearsing. So that sort of hovers over my life as much as my work. In relationship to the story after life, um, yes, certainly it's relative to the death of my younger brother, which is now two and a half years ago, but still strongly present in my life. And the, really the story is about the bond between um, the surviving brother and sister and their ability both to come to terms or begin to come to terms with the loss of their brother and also the the little unknowns of their brother's life because they see him as a fairly, um, well, completely isolated figure, but they realise he has this some sense of a social life beyond their understanding. The other issue of that story is that this brother lives on a housing estate, a public housing estate, 
which are certainly in Melbourne, I'm sure in other parts of Australia, are often demonised in the press. And what we find is that the people who live on that housing estate not only remember the younger brother with affection, but they're fairly affectionate people themselves. And then just little motifs that is often present in my fiction. Toward the end of the story, a brother takes a very sad-looking jade plant from the younger brother's porch and takes it home and makes some cuttings, and, and obviously those cuttings represent the continuation of life. I actually did that, and I have now these very thriving jade plants in in my garden and and jade plants that I made for my brothers and sisters and my mother. And I suppose the other thing about death, my father died two weeks ago today. I think it's two weeks ago. The other issue about death and grief that, well, it does, when I say fascinate me, I, I mean that it really holds my attention. I find the idea of grief and it, it becomes, it sits outside logic so that although my father died two weeks ago, it's hard for me to comprehend that in a time frame, I was saying to my sister the other day, it's as if I don't know how long ago he died. It seemed beyond comprehension in the sense of time-wise. So when you do experience grief, so many things that I suppose control your life or inform your life about your know, logic or about direction or about order, they really become inconsequential. So I felt that when my younger brother died, and I've certainly felt that in the last little while after my father's death, that you have to allow yourself to drift, I think, a little bit and not be too conscious about what's happening to you or to go with that drift. It's a sort of a strange fog or even a dreamlike state that you you find yourself in while you're conscious. And I think you've got to be accepting of that and, and let it run its own course. Tony, condolences on your dad. I did know that and I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask you whether as a writer you use writing as some sort of catharsis to, to work through the grief or work off it or does it just simmer and eventually translate into something or other that you might write? I think that in relationship to my brother's death, um, so that in the collection there are two stories which are closely aligned to his death. So that's the story you just mentioned, Afterlife, and another story, Lemonade. Um, there's also, of course, a childhood story, The Bicycle Thieves, which um, recovers a, a childhood memory of, of, of mine. But I didn't initially think that I should or wanted to write about my brother. And it's one of those occasions where the urge to write was stronger than my choice. In other words, normally if I want to write something, I might have two or three ideas for a story or usually a couple of ideas for a novel and I'll just sort of rationally think about which one would work the best, yeah, which one might take the most time, which one seems to have the most legs. So I go through these sort of creative processes of thinking about the, the construction of a story or a novel. I would have to admit that I was surprised that when I began to write about my brother, it was as if I felt a real need to rather than a desire. And my initial writing was, you know, sort of, which is rare for me, I regarded sort of private writing so that I thought I'll write this stuff down, but I don't think it should or would amount to anything in a public sense. So that I did that, but then I found, you know, particularly the story afterlife of starting to take a shape that not only I enjoyed as a story, 
but I felt there was some necessity about it. And I wasn't sure what that was. And I actually spoke to my mum because I'd also written a couple of non-fiction essays, which I would call walking and grief essays that I eventually published with Mianjin. And I told my mum that I was writing about my younger brother and it's one of those times when I did really seek permission. Although I didn't ask, can I have permission? I talked to her about the stories and the writing and I, I got her to read some of the material. And then we had a conversation and one of the things my mum said was that most of the writing was really reflective of my brother's childhood or valued him as an adult in a way that other people didn't see. So my younger brother had suffered fairly serious psychiatric um, disorders for about 40 years and people who didn't know him you know, really didn't understand him and really didn't sense the depth of him as a person. So she actually said that she felt that the work gave an insight into my brother as a person that would allow people to understand him better. So, you know, so she, yeah, she gave me permission and I have to say that the two stories or the three stories in Darkest Last Night, the two essays and, and several poems that I published in my poetry collection this year, Whisper Songs, I not only um, I'm happy that I, I published them, when I now look back or take a step back as a writer, I actually think that I really enjoy, I like the work. Yeah, I, I like the work and I think that all of those pieces of writing did what I hoped they would do. So in the end I felt very comfortable with it. I didn't feel that it was cathartic though, Paul. What is really interesting is that when I wrote my first book, Shadow Boxing, which I said earlier was very heavily autobiographical, um, that was genuinely cathartic. When I finished that book, I felt that I'd got a lot of stuff out of my system that I needed to, having not set out to do that, but realised afterwards that um, it had achieved something emotionally that I, I needed to write. So you know, as much as sometimes we, we think that writing shouldn't be cathartic, I think there are aspects of our life and experience where writing does allow us to either address and understand something within our psyche and, and certainly sometimes not to overcome it, but to give yourself some form of, I suppose, release would be the best word to, mm. to describe it. Your stories are filled with very strong and nurturing women, Tony, um, whereas sometimes the men are implicitly or outwardly violent or threatening in other ways. Where does that come from? I mean, is that a reflection of your experience and the community you grew up in? And I get the impression that strong women have been a very much a constant in your own life. Yeah. I mean, clearly it, it is partly um, drawing on experience, but I suppose more, Paul, the extent to which that experience becomes central to your conscious and subconscious psyche and understanding of the world. So this book, along with I think all of my short story collections have generally been really well received. I've been very, very fortunate over the years to have very generous commentary and reviews of my work, particularly with this book. Occasionally I've had reviewers, and I'm not here to sort of critique reviewers, but to trying to give understanding to what you've just asked of me. You know, so a, a reviewer of this book talked about, you know, all the men are bad in this book, which I don't agree with. I think it's a very simplistic comment. But the, the reviewer suggested that I try and write other <laughs> different, you know, <laughs> male characters. And I, th I think that's a, a fairly redundant comment before it's written because I think many writers, 
there's a wonderful term that Ross Gibson, who's a wonderful friend of mine in Sydney and a great, great writer, yeah, when you what you might call obsession, he just thinks is well, he said to me when we were doing a workshop together, he felt that it was sort of overcritical of what I was doing. And he loved to use the word reiteration. And that is many writers will revisit the one theme or common themes. And basically your writing life is trying to make sense of the world through those ideas and themes that dominate who you are. And so for me, you know, you could read very common themes into all of my books and essentially it's about trying to come to terms with what we might call uh, masculinity, to trying to come to terms and understand the impact of masculinity on family and community life, and certainly to come to terms with, you know, the impacts of male violence, which is, yeah, the reviewer might suggest I write something else, but I, and I don't know what the reviewer's childhood experience is, but when you spend your childhood and all your teenage years in an extremely violent situation, I mean, it's, you, you don't, well, not that I'd want to shake it, you can't just shake it off. And I think a lot of my writing is trying to make sense of, of those years or the impact of those years. In regard to women, clearly it's the case that women that I grew up amongst were the rock of, of my life. And um, there's that wonderful quote in Steinbeck's Grapes of Rough where Ma Jode, yeah, who's one of the key characters, he talks of her as the citadel that will never be taken. And when I read Grapes of Rough, I, I felt this was a description of all the women I knew who were just impenetrable. No one could move them. No one could run over the top of them. And I was very fortunate to grow up amongst very, very strong women. Having said that, I probably... I wouldn't say idealise, but to, to write a bad, you know, a bad woman is not easy for me to do. In my novel Blood, the character Gwen, she's a bit of a, a badass sort of mother and she neglects her children in many ways. And I enjoyed writing her as a character. She was great. But it's also difficult to come to terms with that because my experience of women is of, of great love and great strength and gentleness combined. So Another favourite piece of text of mine is the Alice Walker poem, Women, where she writes these women had fists as well as hands. And again, that struck me as a great description of the women I knew who had an open hand to for their kids and then a fist to, to defend their kids. So all of my work, I think, is is driven by those experiences. Having said that, if people were to look at the body of my writing, I think after shadow boxing, I would hope that they would find that there are many very gentle men in the books, more complex characterization of men in the books, and men of great value in the books. So I, I, I think that the fixation with you know, being bad men is, is, is a fairly simplistic reflection of the work. Tony, you, you spent the last part of your academic career before, you know, turning to full-time writing not too long ago, focusing on the injustice of climate change and how it impacts on those who are poor, you know, Indigenous communities, uh, the less fortunate in various societies. Given where the world is at post-COP26, the great letdown, and after the experience of COVID lockdowns, I'm just wondering if that's something you're going to remain focused on in your writing, even though you're no longer perhaps as academically engaged. And, 
Yeah, can you can you explain what you mean when you talk about climate injustice, please? Well, I think firstly in regard to climate injustice, I began that project I think seven years ago now. And when you talk about climate change, if you use the term climate change, it was one that didn't have a lot of traction with Aboriginal communities that I was working with. And the terms that really made more sense to people are really protection of country, um, which is really important, and to talk about injustice and injustice in the widest sense so that within Aboriginal communities in relationship to protection of country, the injustices that Aboriginal people experience are not simply related to the, the environment, they're holistic and they have impact across people's lives. So you do have to think holistically about what um, extreme weather events and what these changes do to us. Inherently, if you look at Indigenous knowledge systems, that Indigenous knowledge systems certainly, again, wouldn't think about or deal with country in isolation from a more holistic attitude to the world. And I think this is what the Western world needs to learn and understand, that you can't cure climate change by focusing on renewables. You can't cure climate change by looking at geoengineering. You need to have a deep philosophical shift in relationship to how we regard each other as people, how we interact with human and non-human species, and how, of course, we privilege countries. So the first thing that we should do is, and I know this is almost an impossible ask considering how hopeless um, the Australian government is in particular in regard to climate, we need not only to defer to country, we need to be really humble and regard country as the authority around our lives. And I just don't see that as being at the forefront of of thinking. Like many people, I I think that while some people come away from um, COP in Glasgow trying to convey some sense of optimism, and that might be important strategically, my feeling is that it just indicates another complete failure of Western governments to do anything substantial in relationship to climate. And what I learned, I think, Overall, Paul, in relationship to that project was that it is the philosophical and the deep sort of intellectual and metaphysical that we need to think about if we're to really shift our own thinking and our daily interactions. So that one of the issues that we know, and I know that you would know in this space, is that there are really more dramatic changes occurring than we would have thought in relationship to take up of renewables. We understand that. And one of the arguments being made now is that business understands that this is a win-win for business. So getting away from coal into renewables is actually economically a really good decision. And and I accept I accept that by the way. I accept the maths of that. Now I'm not going to suggest we shouldn't do that. Of course we should do that. Anything that takes us away from fossil fuel burning is a win. But if we only base our our decision-making on economic viability, I actually think that we're prone to make the same mistakes and cause the same damage and vandalisation of country in the future at some other point. We can't just make this a decision of capital or a decision of economics. It has to be a decision, again, I say based on our philosophical and physical relationship to country that we have to change. And if we don't change that, we could easily fall into the same traps that we're in now, you know, in 50, 100 years, 200 years in the future. Are, are activism and writing in, inseparable for you, Tony? And have they 
Have they always been since you've been writing and publishing? It's an interesting point because I, I actually think they are in some ways separate, but I'll e- explain that. So that some of my nonfiction writing, I would say, is deliberately activist writing. I won't go into everything, but over the years I remember I wrote an essay on the death of Thomas Hickey in Redfern. People may remember um, many, many years ago now. I think that was a deliberate activist piece of writing. I wrote a long essay on the camp sovereignty protest against the Commonwealth Games in 2006. That was certainly activist writing. And a lot of my academic or so-called academic writing would often be accused of being subjective and activist, which I'm very proud of. I think in relationship to the fiction, though, Paul, it's a bit different that people often say I'm a political writer or that, you know, people, again, who take a simplistic approach to my work called social realism and they're, they're reviewers who are stuck by doing Marxist theory in the 80s, I think. But <laughs> I think that what I would argue is with my fiction is that I hope it has a um, an impact on people in regard to how they might think about the world and how they think about social injustice. But when I write a story or a novel, I'm not thinking overtly in that sort of political sense. I'm certainly not thinking rhetorically or or polemically. I'm just focusing on the story. And when I taught writing, um, yeah, people come to their writing with various sort of political interests, is that I would say to any student writing a story, the story has to be great. The story has to be true. And your dedication is to the quality of the story. So... It's no good writing a story that is sort of driven by didacticism or or some sort of polemical message if the story itself fails. And I believe that by focusing on the the quality of the writing, by focusing on the narrative and the quality of the stories, the you know, for want of a better term, the politics will will reveal itself. So a good, I suppose, explanation, Paul, is that I'm thinking of and probably I've got this idea for a novel which is based on two middle-aged brothers who are not homeless but who live marginally and who live very close so that they live in one room and share the same double bed and it's about their life um, trying to survive in contemporary Melbourne, you know, you know the contemporary um, situation in Australia. So that clearly when that novel is finished, I hope it, it gives some people a, a sense of what it is like for people who are economically deprived and marginalised to try and survive in a, in a city that is so expensive. But while I'm writing the story, I'm not thinking of any of that. I'm just thinking of these two men and how they got to where they are and how they deal with the world. So that, again, I, I imagine it being quite an intimate portrait and a very loving portrait of the relationship between these men, but I certainly don't see it as, as having a political message. Um, you can't and you should never, tr- you know, I mean this very seriously, it is not the role of a writer to, to try and disseminate or control a message for a reader because the best, I think the greatest aspect of being a writer is having a relationship with readers where readers not only bring their own experience to the, the page but interpret the work in a way that the writer didn't intend or respond often with great complexity or, or difference so that 
I think I've talked to you before about when people ask me what it is I love about being a writer, it is going to um, library events in particular or reading groups or, you know, um, events where you get to talk at length to audiences. So this often, this rarely happens, by the way, at writers' festivals, but where you can be in a room mm. with 10 or 12 people who have read your work and they talk about your work and they reveal or or understand aspects of the story that you didn't expect. And that's the joy of being a writer. So you should never go to a story saying, well, this is what I'm writing and this is how it should be received. The great generosity is in the reader receiving the work and, and responding to it in complex way. I, yeah, the, I think the, the worst thing a writer could ever do is try and correct a reader. Um, if a reader says, well, I think it meant this, well, that's what it meant. I mean, I've seen writers say, "Now you, you know, in audiences at festivals say to a, you know, a question, no, that's not what it was. Well, it's what it was. So, I mean, a writer doesn't have control on how a reader interprets the work. I just have another question about your activism and it's something I've never got around to asking you in our, you know, many, many conversations. And that is, you know, I know your dear friend Gary Foley has had a profound impact on your life and activism. I, I just wondered if you'd I know it's a big question, but if you could talk about Gary and, and his influence on you. Yeah, it is a big question to the extent we, you know, we could take up a whole podcast with it, which he'd love us to do, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but it's not a difficult question to answer because it's, it's a relationship that I've reflected on and spoken about often. And there are several things that are relative, and I can do them, I think, briefly. One is that yeah, Gary Foley came to Melbourne not that much long after the 10 Embassy of 1972-73, and he came to Melbourne really because he knew that the um, political integrity of Aboriginal people in Melbourne was one that would give him a great political education. And that's a big sort of statement coming from someone, you know, or thinking about someone who has such a political um, pedigree themselves and had such a national profile. So Gary Foley was very much influenced by the late Bruce McGuinness, who you mentioned earlier, who was a great family friend of ours, um, of my father's, and Foley knew that um, being around Bruce McGuinness would really assist him in developing himself as an activist and intellectually. And the reason I state that at the start is that I think what Gary Foley has always recognised is that the Victorian grassroots Aboriginal community has, has an incredible um, activist history, which is still um, relevant and prevalent today. The second thing I would say about Foley is that I think he has incredible integrity for you know, people thinking he's such a sort of a, a difficult character in some ways. I actually think he has incredible integrity and my friendship with him is based on really valuing that integrity in him. And thirdly, that for all of the sort of you know seeming public menace of Foley, um, his friendships with non-Aboriginal people, particular non-Aboriginal people, which I know go back to the 60s, and certainly his closest friendships or some of them are friendships that he developed at Monash University when he was there with Brucey in the early 70s. He still has those friendships today, and I would say that Gary Foley can provide a lesson for anyone who's interested in political change and political integrity, and that is that you need to reach out to people across the political spectrum across different communities, across different identities, and to work with people who can enact real change. And he's always understood the value of that. So that while I think people might misunderstand him as some sort of separatist, which he's not or has never been, I think he has incredible understanding of the need to develop um, very loyal, 
by the way, very loyal um, relationships. And the last thing I'd say that people often don't understand about Foley, I think that he's one of the few people in Australia who really understands the intellectual connection between political culture and what other people might dismiss as popular culture. So as a thinker and as someone, as a writer, he has incredible depth of understanding of the relationships, say, between political activism and film, television, news reportage, et cetera. And he really has incredible depth of knowledge around how those... So in other words, he understands how public culture works, I think, probably better than anyone I know. And I think it's an aspect of his activism that people... Um, don't know or wouldn't understand. And and the last point is I, I, I have this, you know, lifetime as an activist, what I call the barricade test. And, you know, it, it wouldn't matter what trouble I was in and where I was in, if the first person I would call if I was in any sort of trouble with authority would be Gary Foley because if he couldn't get there himself and he probably can't, he's, he's getting around on a walking stick these days, he would make sure that I was helped and I would know that that help would never, ever um, dissipate so that I've known, in fact, that when people have, and a lot of this, a lot of people would know about this, when people are in really desperate situation and, and have needed help, Foley has always been there and he is, his loyalty never ceases. And probably at the cost sometimes of his own, you know, well-being and health. In other words, he's exhausted his own physical and mental self to make sure he it's just other Aboriginal people, and, and for that he is just regarded with the highest esteem amongst Aboriginal people in Victoria. I think it's a shame at a public level and at an at a institutional level he doesn't have that status, so he doesn't get to write the op-ed pieces you know, in daily newspapers or in, in the Murray Schwartz empire, um, probably because people think he's a radical. And I, I actually don't think he's a radical. I think he is just a genuine grassroots activist. Just as an observation of him from having had a little to do with him, I find him an incredibly warm character and, and also like he's got a fantastic sense of humour. But but I also sense that he really doesn't care where you come from. He's a great judge of character. What he cares about is what's inside of you. Yeah, and again, those friendships that he has, you know, it is quite amusing when you sit with him and you know, you'll have a conversation about, you know, I remember we were talking about Margot Kidder once, the American actress, and as it turned out, we worked out, no, Foley told us a story that him and Phil Noyce slept in a bed <laughs> on a ranch that Margot Kidder owned. So he has this great way of reaching out across all different classes economically. Um, he knows people all over the world. You know, he can, I think he, he told me about a story about Vim Vendors and a dingo at Paul Cox's house, but um, that's another story. <laughs> he has great Connections, and, and I think, it, as you just said, it's his warmth that people are impacted on. Now, having said that, I've seen him tear strips off people, and usually for very good reason. Just on that sense of humour, um, so many of your stories are infused with a really winning, I think, dark humour. You know, things can be really dire, but they can also be quite or really very funny. I mean, it's always struck me that the resilience of Indigenous people is very steeped with humour. It helps conquer adversity um, often. Uh, and I'm just wondering if the humour in your writing is a, is a reflection of your heritage and the fact that so, so many of your friends and family are, are Aboriginal and might share that. Yeah, look, I, I think it, it is a very particular view of the world that Aboriginal people share, but also in a different or maybe a, a slightly different way, you know, growing up in the inner city, 
my um, old friend, the poet Pio, he has this great term where he says that, yeah, people in Fitzroy in the 60s, we understood the same emotional vibration of the street. And what I think Pio meant by that is that, you know, kids, and particularly kids who might be Greek, Italian, Aboriginal, poor white kids, you know, many kids from different nationalities, Although we had a very different story at home, we shared the street. And I think there is a real strong macabre street humour that comes out of the inner city, which is not there anymore, by the way, which come out of the inner city in the 60s. And when you meet people who who grew up in the inner city in that time, you immediately feel an affinity with them. There's a sort of a a coded language that you understand and and certainly humour is absolutely central to that and the darker the better. In relationship to Aboriginal people, I think we've got to differentiate between, yeah, this whole idea of, you know, happy blackfellas, and I certainly understand you're not inferring that, um, so that, you know, that can be a sort of a, it can be a sort of stereotype or even a racist connotation that no no matter how downtrodden you are, yeah, you just keep this happy smiling face. It's certainly not that. I think it is one, it certainly is a survival technique, but I think the best humour coming out of Aboriginal lives and disadvantage, it, it is dark and it's, it's highly politicised and highly charged. And of course, it's coded so that yeah, you can be in a room of people, and I understood this even when I was at university, you could be in a room full of people and the blackfellas in the room, you know, one one person will say something and we understand that with great hilarity, but the white people in the room don't even understand what you're on about. And that's not being deceptive, that's just the reality of sort of how you're coping in this sort of wider environment or what you might call the general community. So the humour is great. Um, I mean, you mentioned, we both mentioned Foley, but I also mentioned Phil Noyce. It underpins the great film Backroads, I think, which, yeah, there's a moment in Backroads where you get great insight to the really the real impoverishment of Aboriginal people when they visit two Aboriginal communities in, in the west of New South Wales, and you really get a sense of the terrible deprivation that people experience. But that film is just overladen with, with really dark humour and quite anarchic humour, you know, between people like Foley and the late and great Bill Hunter. And I think Foley had a great input into that shift in that film in regard to, you know, rather than Aboriginal people being portrayed as sort of hapless victims, humour is used in that film and in a quite anarchic way to give voice and autonomy and agency to Aboriginal people. It's interesting you talk about what is effectively a trope and, it, and it's so persistent in the Australian canon and I'm thinking of let's say Lawson and Patterson and the trope of as you say the misconception of the happy black fella but that's pervaded for a long long time hasn't it in mainstream Australian literature and, and media too I guess. Yeah, and, and clearly you would pick this up from North America as well in relationship to the betrayal of African-American characters and certainly um, Indigenous First Nations um, characters. If you look at um, American film, if you look at the Western, you, know, you you understand that what were then called you know, Native Americans, First Nations people are usually portrayed as either savages and quite violent savages or, or fools so that that is reflected very much in the Australian consciousness. And I think the foolery is is really important so that there is a real-life story of a Bunurong man, um, Derrimut, who had been a child at the supposed you know, signing of the, the John Batman Treaty in 1835, and Derrimut becomes a sort of fairly desperate and derelict figure in later life. And there is a really important and true story where 
a shitty businessman walking past Jeremy who's sitting in the gutter in Collins Street. So this is when the mercantile sort of profession had really started to overtake Melbourne after the gold rush. He asks Jeremy what he can do to help him and he's looking to give Jeremy a handout. And I think there's nothing more comforting than than for some white people to be able to give Aboriginal people a handout. And Derrimut says to the guy, there's nothing you can give me. And he, he waves his hand and says, because once all of this was mine. And basically inferring, well, unless you can give my land back, there's nothing that I want from you. And that's a very powerful statement from someone who is literally in the gutter. And I think what it reflects is that there's a lot of, yeah, the humour or the foolish sort of, and sort of hapless Aboriginal um, stereotype reflects a need for people to feel comfort in feeling pity for Aboriginal people. And Aboriginal people refusing that you know, offer of pity is a really important and powerful response. To go back to Foley, I think one of his great attributes is to never allow anyone to express pity, even you know, guilt, or sorrow towards him, he would regard that as an attack on his autonomy and his integrity. And I think that, yeah, there's no more comforting figure than an Aboriginal person in the gutter, and we have to make sure that we refuse that. A related question, Tony. In recent years, there's been a real renaissance, I suppose, in interest in Aboriginal stories, um, not least about the truth about, you know, the brutal black and white experience on the colonial and post-colonial frontier. Um, Historians and journalists are writing non-fiction in the space and increasingly novelists, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, are going there. I'm just wondering who's entitled, who gets to write these stories and can non-Indigenous writers play a part ethically and responsibly uh, in their portrayal of black characters in non-fiction and fiction? I think the first thing I'd say is that Alexis Wright, the great novelist, um, addressed this, I think, more eloquently than anyone I know in an essay she wrote for Mianjin in 2016, which addressed the issue of who who owns the story. And I think Alexis's wonderful essay doesn't directly um, make a statement about who should or shouldn't tell a story, but what she says so eloquently is that Aboriginal people We need to own our own story. We need to have control of it. And the misrepresentation of our story by non-Aboriginal people does enormous damage. And they're the, I think that's the simplest way to explain a, a fairly complex argument. And I agree wholeheartedly with Alexis. When I'm asked as a writer about this question, my response is not to back off making a definitive statement, but to say, well, whatever people decide to do and whatever they decide to write about, They must take great responsibility for their decisions. They must think really strongly about the ethical implications of what they're doing before they write. And then once they write, they must actually defend the work. So I've heard and seen non-Aboriginal people being questioned about writing Aboriginal characters and Aboriginal story and then almost sort of disowning the work in their response as if they had never thought about these issues. And I, I find that probably disingenuous or even more as a writer, a bit foolish. So that when a person says, well, I didn't realise that people would be sort of so upset or I didn't realise that people might have a different view, I find that a little bit difficult to accept. So 
My sense is if a non-Aboriginal person writes an Aboriginal character or an Aboriginal story, and if that person is queried or questioned, I would like to hear that person defend their decision and give us a sense of why they did it. Because I think ultimately that's the ethical point to this about being responsible for your work. My other issue here that I that does interest me is that, yeah, there is this thing in this shared space of colonialism, this shared space of colonial violence, so that for me there is a great need for non-Aboriginal people to address a history that in many ways it's refused to, to own, so that, yeah, we know of experiences, Paul, where Aboriginal people actually have to carry the memory of, say, a violent history or a violent event because it's been erased from white consciousness, and that's a terrible burden to place in the, you know with Aboriginal people. So in that sense, I think the histories that have been hidden or the histories that it, white Australia hasn't taken ownership of, of course they need to be written about. They need to be discussed and need to be discussed more widely. So in that sense, I think that the stories that I think we need to address in common are those stories of what I would call colonial interaction and the ramifications for the for the outcome of addressing those stories. Having said that, it is a very complex area, and I, I no one, no one could give a a rule or a simplistic response to this. And it's an ongoing complex space that we exist in, and that is that's the reality of living in a colonial society. It's complex, it's tense, and it is sometimes abrasive. And within that sort of contested cultural space, Tony, is there a character or characters you, you wouldn't write that you wouldn't feel equipped to write? That's a great question, Paul, because it's why I wouldn't necessarily base my decision on characters I couldn't write. There are characters, of course, that I can't write or I start to think about writing a character and, in fact, I find that I can't do it adequately and that's a creative intellectual decision. So when I make decisions on writing particular characters, it's more on that basis. If we think about characters that we won't write, I'll give you, a, I think, a tangible example is that in Australia today, there are stories of, I think, stories of both real horror and real bravery and courage around the status and lives of asylum seekers and refugees. I know a great story of recently of a wonderful young man from Iran who's just been given a university scholarship. You know, he's a classic example of coming to Australia as a, as a kid on a boat illegally, and I use the term in inverted commas, of his family being incarcerated for many years, finally being freed, and this kid putting himself through high school and doing very well, getting into university and now being given some support. The reason I say that is that these stories need to be told by those people who have experienced them. For instance, Paul, I, I wouldn't write a story about a, a young refugee kid surviving in Melbourne. Even if I felt I could do it creatively, I wouldn't do it because I want to hear those stories. I want to listen and read those stories. So for me, if someone says, well, what should I do as a writer? I've done this before and I know I'll be doing it again next year is to volunteer to work with young kids who have come out of those experiences to help them to become better writers. So as a writer, I have the great opportunity to help young writers have their stories heard and written and published. So for me, that's a much more valuable and ethical outcome than me thinking that my individual 
art, for want of a better term, is more important. So when I hear writers say that the notion that they shouldn't write any character that they feel like is a sort of an issue of censorship, I have to be quite direct here. I think that's incredibly narcissistic to think that your individual artistic freedom is more important than a community that you're part of. And and I can't see it as being anywhere near rewarding as working with kids and then you know, going to an event where these kids stand up in front of their families who people who don't have English as a first language, who themselves can't read and write English, and hear their, their teenage kids read a piece of writing that they've produced and see the pride in their families, that's much more rewarding than, than writing a character yourself. Tony, we've covered a whole lot of ground today and we've talked about a lot of stuff. We didn't get around to, to football, unfortunately, conversation for another day about, about why you're a Carlton supporter, but we'll, we'll do that some other time. It's very simple, Paul, is that Carlton supporters are more intelligent than Collingwood supporters. It's not hard to understand that. <laughs> I gave you that one. Yes. It's been a really great pleasure, Tony, and thanks again, and we'll see you soon. Thank you very much, Paul. Take care. Cheers. Tony's latest short story collection, Dark as Last Night, is published by University of Queensland Press. This episode of Book It In was produced by Daniel Simo, Camilla Hannan and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Melanie Tate. I'm Paul Daly. Thanks for listening to Book It In. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading.